Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR for another cram session. In these special releases, we have aggregated the takeaways and tips from previous episodes. If you'd like a focused refresher on previous topics covered, stay tuned for this cram session. Up next are the final thoughts from the episode Hardware Investing with Avidan Ross. Big thanks again to Avidan for joining us on the program. Let's recap the key takeaways. The first takeaway is called The Extremes of Consumer Experience. In today's interview, Avidan talked about how we are living in an increasingly digital world where processes are automated and experiences are virtual. But in parallel, consumers are craving increasingly real analog physical experiences. People want to express their identities through customized products with brands that reflect their sense of self. It's odd to think about the balance in my own life between technology-centric virtual time and that which is completely unplugged, appreciating real-world physical things around me. In a way, it seems that fat tales of consumer experience are emerging. And from Avidan's standpoint, It's the intersection of hard physical products leveraging soft technological advancements that may hold the biggest opportunities. Key takeaway number two is called Platform In or Platform On. Recently, we have spent a lot of time discussing platforms that companies have built which allow others to build upon them. Examples including the iPhone, Slack, and Tesla have been cited as brilliant examples of the platform approach allowing a form of crowdsourced innovation. But Avidan mentioned another example today that we haven't spoken much about. Not platforms that others are building on, but rather platforms that can be built into others' products or services. Here we discussed Uber and how their platform that efficiently connects providers and consumers is one that can be built into a number of other businesses. It would not be very surprising to see many companies powered by Uber in the future. All right, and key takeaway number three is called Hardware, Why Now? Ten years ago, it was not possible to innovate in hardware the way it is today. There were a number of factors that Avidan mentioned, including Wi-Fi was not ubiquitous, Bluetooth was not ubiquitous, and cell providers were charging an arm and a leg to get access amongst many other factors. Now, hardware startups, courtesy of innovation like Arduino, can do rapid hardware prototyping with cloud connectivity for thousands of dollars versus millions. 
Here, Avidan brought up the example of Nest, who did not raise a 750k angel round. They raised 20 to 30 million dollars out of the gate. Today, hardware innovation has incredible potential and economic viability due to ubiquitous connectivity, unlimited processing, connectivity to other data streams, and the ability to prototype very cheaply. And as mentioned in my blog post, Hardware as an Anchor, it can function as the beginning of a long-term healthy annuity if the value is there. Which relates to this week's tip, which is called Delightful Trojan Horses. When we think about Trojan horses, images of Greeks sneaking into Troy and destroying the city come to mind. What was a gift to be celebrated turned into a terrible, bloody nightmare. Today we talked about the concept of a Trojan horse, but in a different light. No longer was it a vehicle of destruction, but rather one of value. Avidan cited multiple examples of startups that are using hardware as a Trojan horse, where startups are delivering initial value with a compelling reason to purchase, but with a deeper hidden value that increases the more one uses a product. This is reminiscent of software-based businesses that we've discussed. Things like Netflix that we reviewed with Leo Polovets, delivering immediate value in the form of on-demand video and increasingly more long-term value in the form of improving ratings algorithms, allowing users to identify content that they will enjoy more readily. However, the major difference today was that we were talking about hardware inherently more sticky, more firmly embedded into user workflows, and with a higher degree of customer willingness to pay along multiple parallel revenue streams. Products that create brand evangelism and tremendous brand affinity. Intangible assets that drive much more value over time. While revenue and margin are the immediate value providers to a business, the ultimate P&L Trojan horse is brand value. When I did M&A for Danaher, we would target companies that had created enormous brand value with hardware products. B2B companies with passionate customer enthusiasts that would proudly recommend their products. These customers were firmly against switching to other brands. Cost could be driven out of existing products, sometimes with quality implications, and customers would stay. Price could be increased aggressively multiple times a year, and customers would stay. Brand loyalty caused customer retention far beyond when customers would have abandoned other companies. In this interview, Avidan talked about increasing sources of value. He talked about the significant brand value that can be created with physical products. He articulated the changing economics of hardware and why it makes much more sense than it did a decade ago. So the next time that a hardware startup sends you their pitch deck, look for the delightful Trojan horse, not the destructive one. All right, that will wrap things up for today. Thanks, as always, for giving the show a listen. Uh, If you want to get all the newest content and all the news from the Full Ratchet and Venture Weekly, make sure you go to the website and sign up for the newsletter. Uh, The website is fullratchet.net, and I'm sure you will see the newsletter link when you get onto the site. Up next are the takeaways and tips from the episode Getting Smart on a New Market with Charles Hudson. 
Such a great conversation there with Charles. I had a real tough time limiting the key takeaways to three. So I decided to pick takeaways specifically related to the topic, although clearly there were many more wise lessons than just these. Key takeaway number one is called market structure over market size. The three things that Charles looks at with a new market are number one, the market structure, number two, the high-level economics of the business at scale, and number three, the relevance and timing of the opportunity. What Charles summed up as, quote, is the world bending in the direction that these founders want to go? First, Charles attempts to pick apart the market and look for all the factors that make for a good market versus a bad one. He asks the question, what is the market going to look like at scale? Is this a winner-take-all market at scale? Where the steady state is that the market leader will get a disproportionate share of the outcome. Are there network effects? Are there structural reasons why everybody, consumers and service providers, should be on one platform? With a majority critical mass of users, are there tremendous benefits to the greater network of users? As more users are acquired, do the benefits increase for all users on the platform? When all are on one platform, the benefits can include things like more liquidity, the lowest search costs, and the lowest transaction costs for both sides. He did mention that there are cases where the constituents in a market would not like one monopolistic provider, but there are some markets where the steady state is going to have one large winner. Key takeaway number two is called fragmented versus consolidated markets. Charles went on to describe markets that are really fragmented. He brought up the example of Salesforce and how many assume that they own a majority of the market when, in fact, they have about 20% of the CRM market. In these cases, it can be really hard to build a standardized product that can serve the needs of all customers. This is where we talked about the degree of homogeneity of the customer base. If customer needs are very heterogeneous, it is going to be very difficult to develop a solution that serves all and also to sell that solution in a scalable way. His final point here is that he doesn't like competing with large majority share incumbents in their home markets. He wouldn't want to compete with Google and search or back in the 90s with Microsoft and productivity apps. If you compete with the biggest in their core market, you're going to get their best punch and their best people are working to defend the core. In these cases, a startup must have a differentiated approach toward go-to-market relative to the incumbent. Okay, and then key takeaway number three is called nascent market TAM. Charles starts with the question, are people already spending money against this problem today? Then he looks to see how current spending habits map to new spending habits with the startup's offering. And one of the watchouts here are companies looking to radically reduce costs. If they're playing in a billion-dollar market and they plan to reduce costs by a factor of 10, then the market will shrink to 100 million. Then he looks to see if leading companies are healthy, good, gross-margin businesses. There are plenty of verticals with massive TAMs, but razor-thin margins like retail grocery. And he also thinks about whether a whole new group of users will be brought into a market. Is the question one of non-consumption? If so, the TAM may not be relevant. 
Or does the startup plan to reallocate surplus from one level in the value chain to another? In that case, the current TAM will be much different than the eventual market size. And his final point here is that he's not using TAM to calculate an exact market amount or revenue amount that will be achieved in the coming years. Rather, at the macro level, does he see a large number of customers that will be willing to pay a high price? It's really just that simple. Okay, let's wrap up with a tip of the week. And this week's tip is called the customer volume value curve. We've spoken a lot in the past about companies that receive more benefit as they increase their customer base and customers become more active. Companies like LinkedIn, Netflix, Twitter, all increase the value that users receive as the user base itself increases. But today, in a simple and direct manner, Charles took it a step further and talked about something I'm choosing to call the customer volume value curve. The example we discussed was Slack and how in a smart but maybe even diabolical way, they are set up so that the more customers using the platform, the more value is created for the users and for the enterprise. So not only does the value for the community of users increase, but the value for the payers does as well. In this case, the more people Slack has using the product, the more value the paid features have for the enterprise. In most cases, it seems that this value is more of a linear relationship. The more users a social network has, the more ads they can sell. The volume side of the equation is most critical here. We know how much money we can make per user, so how do we get more users? The below graph depicts the case for most businesses where volume of customers does not impact the price that can be charged per customer. And for all you listeners out there, I will include three sets of graphs. So each set includes two graphs. On the left will be a graph that shows the relationship between the volume of users and the dollars you can charge per user. So volume on the y-axis, dollars per user on the x-axis. And the graph right next to that one will still have volume on the y-axis, but now the x-axis is going to be the total revenue received for the company. Very high-level macro graphs that depict the relationship between volume and dollars that we're describing here. So the first graph is just a linear relationship. Volume doesn't impact price per user whatsoever. So while the company makes more revenue as they increase their number of users, they do not make more revenue per user. But what if the more users they did acquire, the more they could charge for every ad click? What if as volume increases, price increases as well? Here the curve starts to look less linear and more exponential. So the graphs depicted in this scenario on the left shows a linear relationship between the dollars per user and the volume. So as you get more users, you can actually charge more money for each individual user. And then the graph on the right shows total revenue by volume of users. So this is where the exponential effect comes in. Because you're making more dollars per user, you have an exponential total revenue effect. So moving on to the last set of graphs, on top of that, Slack has taken this all a step further with step change increases on top of the exponential curve relationship. In addition to the main paid service of security, they have other incremental paid features that also increase their necessity as the user base increases. 
So once a company has a certain number of users on Slack, the CSO ponies up for paid security. Then based on the extensive usage and conversation history, the CIO adds storage and searchability. Finally, individual departments may purchase integrations between Slack and other value-added services, like the example Charles mentioned of GitHub integration for developers. Now the graph starts to look even more interesting. And the graphs I have depicted in this section show not only an exponential curve relationship, but also step-up increases at various places along the exponential curve as these incremental revenue sources are added. As I reflect on the customer volume value curves, I realize that every business cannot be set up to take advantage of these economics. But there are two questions here that I think are relevant for every new business. Number one, will your users receive more value over time? And number two, do your payers need more value over time? If the answer is yes, then the company is set up to share in and accelerate that value. This is likely why SaaS companies have become so popular amongst investors. Their business model and product delivery is set up in a way to allow for ongoing value creation. Remember, the more value one can offer, the more one may receive in return. That will wrap things up for today. Remember to head over to AngelList and back New Stack Ventures. If you want to see some really exciting new startups and partner with some of the smartest angels around, we've been really fortunate to amass a group of folks that are sharing exceptional deal flow and contributing far more than just capital with their insights and connections. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. Coming up, we've got the takeaways and tips from the episode on the cap table with John Buttrick and Sean Moran. Well, awesome, guys. Well, I really appreciate you doing this, carving out the time and uh, talking about a very important topic, if not always the most sexy, uh, the cap table. So thank you both. Thanks a lot, Nick. Thanks, Enjoyed Nick. it. Yeah, really appreciate it. Big thanks to John and Sean for coming on the program. Let's recap the key takeaways. Key takeaway number one is called the basic elements of a cap table. So a cap table or capitalization table is the record of ownership in a company. 
On the left, you have a list of the stakeholders, including individuals or entities that hold securities in a company. Across the top, you'll see the classes of stock, including common, Series A preferred, Series B, and or options. The cap table will illustrate the outstanding ownership in a company, and also on a fully diluted basis, which takes into account preferred stock in an as-converted-to-common basis. The table will also include options issued and those remaining in the pool, other convertible securities such as warrants, and not all cap tables will include the price per share, but as Sean mentioned in today's interview, he believes that it should be included on every cap table as it reveals the financing history of the company. Okay, key takeaway number two is called why ongoing management of equity is broken. The first point here related to accuracy. Most often cap tables are tracked in an Excel spreadsheet, which as John mentioned is really just a secondary source, meaning they attempt to display ownership, but are often inaccurate. Accuracy is a major issue with cap tables. We all have been in the situation where different revs of Excel documents are emailed around and it's anyone's guess as to which, if any, are accurate. eShares has changed this by acting as a primary source. It's not just a ledger. It's a transfer agent that represents the true ownership of a company. The second point here related to costs. Clearly, it's very expensive to have law firms manage this process, not to mention the frequent reconciliations. Plus, it seems that the savings potential on 409As can be significant. Okay, the next point here had to do with consistency. Sean mentioned that many cap tables are organized differently, and most don't even include the price per share paid by investors. It can be very difficult to understand the funding history, total amount raised, and true fully diluted position of different shareholders with standard Excel cap tables. I think it goes without saying that a standardized approach with all the critical data elements can bring tremendous clarity to the equity stack. Okay, and the final point here in key takeaway number two is called management and reporting. If one is an investor with multiple investments, it is very difficult to know the current value of one's portfolio. A significant year-end process is required when one has to get all of the most recent cap tables, collect the documentation related to each investment, and get audited financial statements. With my current portfolio, as it stands, I can't imagine pinging all the founders for this information. While they may have much of it available, the communication chain alone would be difficult to manage. And this is often because all of this information is siloed. I cannot view all of my positions in an aggregate manner, at least not without leveraging a tool like eShares. And because it's cloud-based, any investor can access the most current version at any time. And the most intriguing aspect of reporting is that eShares allows for different scenario planning. An investor or founder can tweak assumptions like the next round's valuation, participation, refresh of the option pool, or liquidation preferences. This is where Sean talked about the tools, including the waterfall analysis, that allow one to create scenarios on top of an existing cap table. Okay, to wrap up here, we have key takeaway number three, which is challenges with employee options. We discussed a number of issues with employee options, many of which are exacerbated by mismanagement of the cap table. 
The first related to the option pool shuffle, which has to do with option pools factored in at either the pre or post money valuation. A quick tip for founders, don't let investors slip the option pool into the pre-money. It will lower the effective valuation. On the second point here, John mentioned that there are problems upon issuance of options where board approvals are not signed at the right time. The third challenge with employee options has to do with the paperwork. It's a huge hassle for those administering it at the company. The fourth point was that employees often don't know how many options they have, how many have vested, or when they vest. A very good friend of mine who is debating leaving a very well-known Series B company called me the other day about his options. He didn't know how many he had and was afraid they'd know he was considering leaving if he asked for his fully diluted position and vesting status. Not good. The fifth point here had to do with employees exercising their options. So the process of exercising today can be a major process, and it's often delayed for months. This has been used in a predatory fashion by many companies to avoid paying out departing employees. And the sixth and final point here was that employees often don't know what their position is. As Sean mentioned, maybe they know the numerator, i.e. what they own in a company, but they still don't know the denominator i.e. the total shares outstanding in a company, not to mention all the different terms that can impact their option value. Clearly, employees are in a difficult situation in the current environment. It's nice to know that there are solutions that not only provide value to a company's founders and investors, but to the employees as well. All right, let's wrap up with a tip of the week, and I'm calling this week's tip a simple cap table. Instead of the standard tip this week, I've decided to put together a very simple version of a cap table. As discussed in the interview, these things can get quite complex after factoring in various terms and multiple rounds of funding. But it's best to know the basics and start out with a simple example. I've put this in a Google sheet and we'll make sure to link it up in the post on the website. If you'd like to test your knowledge, see if you can calculate the price per share with the following inputs. A startup called Lost Certs is raising their first round of capital. They have agreed to a pre-money valuation of $3 million and have raised a total of $1 million. So the post-money valuation is $4 million, and they're selling 25% of their company. And finally, the outstanding founder stock prior to investment was 6 million shares. So based on those inputs, how many shares are being sold and at what price? To see the simple cap table with formulas and the answer, check out the post at fullratchet.net. All right, that will wrap things up for today. Thanks to all of you who have left a recent review on iTunes. Uh, Those reviews help a great deal, and I really appreciate you taking the time to do it. That will conclude this cram session installment. Jump on the TFR website at fullratchet.net today to sign up for the newsletter and receive all the info on special content, episodes, and the best articles written on startups every week. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you next time.